Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a special episode for you and focused entirely on outpatient arthroplasty. So with the pandemic, changes to resource allocation, a lot of people have moved towards outpatient arthroplasty, and this issue has become one of of supreme importance for many shoulder arthroplasty surgeons. And I wanted to get some perspective on this. So we've invited some colleagues who specialize in hip and knee arthroplasty who've kind of already made this move and have a lot of experience with it. And our hope is they can kind of give us a glimpse into the future of where we're headed with shoulder arthroplasty. So first time we have Dr. Craig Dallavalli, who's a professor, Department of Orthopedic Surgery, Chief of Adult Reconstruction at Russian Anderson Medical Center, member of the Hip Society, member of the Knee Society, member of the International Hip Society, currently president of AUKUS, um, member at large for the Hip Society. Past president. Past president. Past president. Past president. Past well, president. I, with, with that many acolytes, it's hard president. to keep them straight. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. I don't still want to be president. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Next, we have um, Antonio Chen. Don't get me Chen, wrong. It was great, but it's, it's a lot. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, next, we have Antonio Chen, Director of uh, Research for the Division of Adult Reconstruction and Intelligent Arthroplasty at the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Brigham and Women's. Um, associate professor there at Harvard Medical School, um, recently served as president of MSIS, um, and is on the AUC leader, uh, the AUC leader for the AOS uh, for Evidence-Based Quality and Value Committee. So, Antonio, welcome to the podcast. It is good to be here, and that's not recent president either, <laughs> a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then finally we have um, Dr. James Gregory, associate professor um, at um, McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas. Um, in Houston. Um, he has um, a special interest and expertise in outpatient shoulder arthroplasty. He's done some research in this area, specifically shoulders, and our hope is that he can share some of his perspective here on what's going on in Houston in this area. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's just step right into this. So let's talk about pre-pandemic two years ago. James, what percentage was outpatient for you at that point? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, um, all of my patients under 65 were outpatient, and over 65, we actually looked this up this year, and I was doing a 32% outpatient of patients over 65 pre-pandemic. That's obviously changed dramatically over the past two years. So tell us what it is now. So now it's probably up around 75 or 80%, um, and that's just talking primaries. Revisions, I'll still do some revisions outpatient in younger patients, but generally my revisions will stay overnight. Um, it's really the older patients with medical comorbidities that, you know, heart and lung problems primarily or social issues, they'll, they'll still be kept overnight in the hospital setting. What do the numbers look like for you, Craig? At this point, where were you before the pandemic? Where are you now? Yeah, I mean, I think pre actually pretty similar to, uh, to the previous speaker. I mean, I think, let me just try to think. Maybe it was maybe it was forty percent, and then I think in the midst of the pandemic, it went to you know seventy to eighty percent. Um, so again, the pandemic really did kind of accelerate things. Um, yeah, maybe maybe around forty percent before, but it definitely accelerated things. And what about you, Antonio? Lay, lay the groundwork for us. Where were you before? Where are you now? 
So we're an academic medical center. So I was probably doing less than 5% going home the same day. Only if a patient really asked for it, mostly my uni patients who would go home the same day. And then pandemic accelerated everything. 30 to 50% of my patients go home the same day now. And some of my colleagues have even more than that. So we were lucky. We had the infrastructure in place prior to pandemic, but I don't think we took as much advantage of it. And then once the pandemic hit and we were only allowed to do outpatient for a period of time, it really accelerated the process. And I think more importantly, it normalized it for my patients. They said, you know, I saw my cousin, sister, friend, neighbor go home the same day and they did great. So it took away the stigma. And tell us for you, Antonio, what is there a difference for you between outpatient 23 hour OBS? You know, from a billing insurance patient care perspective, are you admitting for the patients that you're you're doing outpatient? Are you admitting them and then discharging them? How does that work for you? No, so the ones I'm saying outpatient, I mean uh, same day discharge, so not 23 hour hours. Most of our patients were going home the next day, so a lot of them were going home 23 hour hours already. But the hospital didn't want anyone coming in during the pandemic, so I'm talking about same day discharge patients. What about for you, Craig? I, mean, I know you operate in a couple of different settings. Do you have places where you do kind of 23-hour OBS versus straight outpatient? How does that mix work for you? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's good because I don't know what James's kind of uh, setup is, but mine is completely different than Antonia's. You know, when I do cases at Rush, they stay in the hospital at least overnight. Um, when I do cases at my outpatient centers, um, basically one of them has uh, overnight capability um that we can keep people 23 hours legally but i think in seven or eight years since we've been operating there we've kept a half a dozen patients overnight um and these are freestanding facilities i mean they're literally not connected to any kind of medical center um you know they are freestanding you know independent facilities so a very different kind of environment than what antonia is using i'm not sure what james is using but for us again it's freestanding centers um there happens to be if we want to use the most uh, a hospital across the street. Uh, but, you know, again, we're completely independent from them and freestanding. Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I think it depends. A lot of it's actually dependent on insurance status because, you know, um, younger patients, patients who aren't governmental payers, you know, I primarily do them in the ASC. But as of now, there's no ASC reimbursement code for total short orthoplasty for Medicare patients in an ASC. And so the way that we worked, it's a little bit different setup than, than both Antonia and, and Craig. Um, I was able to do those patients in our hospital, but they would go home from PACU. So they didn't have to be admitted. Um, they, didn't, they weren't 20-hour off. They didn't have to go up to the floor and come back down. They would just go home from PACU, and um, that was okay via Medicare. Now that Medicare has removed uh, CBT 23472, the total short code from the inpatient-only list, you don't even have to – there shouldn't be any issue – with the charging patients from PACU in, in, in a hospital setting either. So it, it's kind of smoothed this whole process out. Now, James, you mentioned that you still have some of your patients you do as an inpatient. Tell us, what is, your, what is your process for risk stratifying people? How do you make your decision beforehand as to who's likely going to stay, who's likely going to go home? So I think that's kind of the, in my opinion, that's the most important thing of this whole discussion because that's really what's going to determine who does well without patient shoulder arthroplasty. In my mind, there's there's basically two main factors. One is medical comorbidities, and for me, that's defined primarily as cardiopulmonary disease. So something it used to be pre-pandemic, if I needed cardiac or pulmonary clearance, I'd keep them overnight. Now I'm a little bit looser than that. It's really if it's you know if it's got a pacemaker. 
if they've got some other kind of arrhythmia, if they've got heart failure, something where I'm concerned that maybe volume status after surgery is going to mess with their heart. If they've got severe COPD, need oxygen, something like that, they're definitely going to stay. The other big thing is they need to have social support and they need to want to go home. And so some people want to stay. Some people don't have the support at home. They're coming from a nursing home. They're doing things like that. Those people are not going to do well without patient shoulder arthroplasty. So that's the other group that, that stays for me. Craig, tell us, what's your system here? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two ways to look at it. Um, you know, Mike Meneghini, who's a hip and knee surgeon in Indiana, has done a really, really nice job of putting together kind of a formal score um, to determine suitability for outpatient surgery. And he's done that in conjunction with an internist who he's worked with for several years, and they have a lot of experience. And again, it's kind of a very formal kind of scoring system uh, to determine eligibility for outpatient surgery. For me, it's much more, um, I guess the things that I look at are, does the patient seem relatively healthy? Like, do they have any major medical comorbidity that's going to prevent them from going home? Um, and we've looked, you know, we've done a couple of studies and looked at, you know, risk factors for complications, particularly readmission and reoperation, which are the big ones. Um, we found like age over 80, diabetes and obesity are the big issues, which are certainly not a surprise in hip and knee replacement. And I would assume it's similar stuff, uh, you know, with shoulder replacements and outpatient shoulder stuff in general, that those would be three big risk factors as well. Um, so again, I think they, they, there, are, there are folks who are relatively healthy. And one of the other things I think that, or two of the other things that we really look at carefully are how complicated is the case? Um, and, you know, I think you want to really be able to provide uh, consistent operative time, consistent blood loss, um, and a low rate of intraoperative complications. So I generally try to stick to things that are more straightforward um, to avoid extended operative times, more than usual blood loss, uh, and, you know, in, intraoperative misadventures. So I think that in general, the surgeon should be really honest with themselves about is this a case I can easily do where I, I don't think it's likely I need any kind of quote-unquote backup. And then the third factor I think we look at is a very soft, do we trust the patient? Um, we do patients all the time who live alone. Um, people who make me nervous are, you know, like people with multiple allergies. Our literature shows patients with multiple allergies have problems after surgery. I don't know if you have looked at in your literature, but we clearly see that. Patients who are taking preoperative opioids are a problem. Patients who, you know, you just don't feel like you can trust. Patients who don't have a good support system. Patients who English is a second language because there's just a lot of instructions and responsibility that goes on with doing outpatient procedures. So, um, you know, I feel like it sounds complicated, but I feel like within two minutes, I'm able to make an assessment of relatively healthy patient, relatively straightforward problem, someone I trust. And if I'm not sure, I just ask one of my nurses. I have two nurses I've worked with for an extended period of time. And I ask their opinion and, and you know, they're very helpful in terms of, you know, gauging that as well. What about you, Antonio? As you've lived through the switch, how have you been risk stratifying patients? So we have this setup where it's called PPR, you know, post-procedure recovery. And we do select patients as post-procedure recovery if they hit a litany of different um, items. So similar to what Craig is saying, and you know, uh, Michael Meneghini is the one who really worked with an internal medicine doctor to solidify these comorbidities, but no sleep apnea, uh, no chronic 
Um, anticoagulants actually are big ones, no active uh, atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease. They're probably not undergoing joint replacement anyway, um, but not actively or not being managed, for example. We do have an ASA criteria, but it, we do definitely send some patients home who probably have a higher ASA if they're, you know, the sniff test is right, like Craig is saying. Like, if they, if we think they can go home, they have good support staff. Um, support staff person is one they can do it. We have sent some revisions home, but mostly the primaries are the ones that we sent home the same day. And we go down a whole checklist. So I have that as my epic build-in. I type in um, a, a dot phrase, and then I go down the list and check it off. If any of them can't be fully checked off, then I will put them as PPR, which means go home 23 hours later. Oh, I think the one of the things that a lot of people worry about a lot as they transition from inpatient to outpatient is about the bounce back. The patient who shows up in the ER in the first 24 hours after surgery. Is there anything specific you can think of that you've done to prevent that bounce back or anything, you, what, the experiences you've had where someone has bounced back and then you've changed your practice to prevent that patient from bouncing back in the future? Yeah, so what we do, first of all, prior to the surgery itself, um, patients get a phone call, make sure everything's in line, make sure they have a support staff or support person there um, by their side who obviously either picks them up or someone who can touch base and do all the listening to instructions because when a patient's being discharged, a lot of information at once. So we want to make sure that someone else has listening ears who didn't just undergo surgery because it's easy to forget these things. And then the patient actually gets a call that evening. So checking on there, checking on their pain, checking to see how they're doing to try to prevent that bounce back of coming to the emergency room, kind of normalizing fears such as, you know, okay, you may not be able to walk right away or you can walk, but you're going to be painful as you do so. Or, you know, this is how you should take your pain, ma pain management regimen and things like that. And then they get another call the next day too, 24 hours after surgery. So what we say with these outpatient procedures, it takes a lot of touch points, actually. It takes more touch points than regular patients because patients are going home. But by doing so, we think we mitigate the number of bounce backs to the emergency room. If a patient's worried about pain or swelling, we can either normalize it or say, oh, why don't you come to the office tomorrow? You know, X, Y, and Z colleague is in the office. Um, that's another total joint surgeon. Why don't you go see them? Instead of taking a trip to the emergency room, someone can lay their eyes on them or someone's physician associate can see you as well. So that way we prevent people from coming back to the emergency room because they're worried or afraid of having gone home the same day. What about you, Craig? As you've lived through bundled payments, as I'm sure you've had patients occasionally come back to the ER, what are some changes you've made to kind of prevent that from happening? Yeah, I think the big thing is, you know, I'm going to echo a lot of stuff that Antonia said, is that this definitely requires more work. And if you want to, we can talk about why it's worth it, because it's 100% worth it. But it's definitely more work for the physician and for the physician's practice. Again, 100% worth it. And I think lots of touch points really, really help. Um, for me, what I do is, you know, uh, most I live in the city of Chicago, and most of the ASCs I operate are in the suburbs. So I usually do my cases. I hang around, try to do academic work, emails, whatever, and then start heading home. And then while I'm in the car driving home, I'm driving, I'm calling the patients who I operate on earliest in the day, kind of in order of, you know, who I operated on, just to touch base. Because as, as I said before, and I think as Antonia mentioned, you know, it's a lot of information these patients are getting. Um, and it's, it's frequent that there's something that they don't understand or they have a question about. So I feel that those phone calls are very useful. They're either very quick because they have no questions or they're worthwhile because there's some major misunderstanding about something. Um, and I think it really prevents a lot of unnecessary phone calls to the person on call who doesn't really know what's going on. 
you know, resident fellow who's covering or something like that, or someone just saying, I'm going to the emergency room, you know? Um, and there are some patients we have to tell to go to the emergency room, and those phone calls are just as important. Uh, but I think lots of contact and the patient understanding, if you have a question, issue, or problem, please call me, please call my office, please don't go to an emergency room. If you feel you absolutely have to go to an emergency room, if it's at all possible, go to Rush. If you feel it's life-threatening, go to another emergency room, but ask them to call Rush. And really give that information so that patients aren't hesitant to call. Because honestly, it is a lot of information they get in a short period of time. Um, and it's easy for them to make a mistake and take a medication incorrectly or not understand something or, or something like that, 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 like I said, leads to a readmission or an emergency room visit. And, you know, I think for any physician or any, particularly any surgeon, the last thing you want is your patient going to the emergency room. Because the way the emergency room doctors think and the way that they approach problems is different from ours because they've got different priorities. So uh, I feel like once you lose control of that patient, particularly for a bundle or anything, you know, the, the cost can, can, can spiral out of control. And things may happen in the emergency room that you don't want happening, which is frustrating, I think, for most of us. So I think lots of contact points and open lines of communication is really, really important. What about for you, James? I'm gonna, have you, as you've had the occasional patient bounce back, have you changed your practice? Are you calling everyone the day of surgery? Do you have someone in your practice doing that? So that's uh, that's a great question, Peter. And I'd like to echo what you know Antonia and, and Craig were saying. I mean, I think touch points are important. There's a couple of differences that I'd like to highlight in my practice. So one, so I don't actually, or my practice doesn't call them the same day or you know the day after discharge. The hospital does. But we, we do a couple of different things. I think that's okay from a shoulder standpoint because there's not a lot that we're doing differently from a shoulder arthroplasty kind of post-op care versus like a, a cuff repair, for instance. They're just basically wearing the sling. They're focusing on pain control. They're focused on mobility. But they're not really doing much with that shoulder, at least with my post-op protocol right away. So I don't think the education, I, I haven't run into as many issues in terms of questions with the post-op protocol. But there are a couple of things we do do. So one is we have an app that's free for all the patients, and this goes for kind of all the surgeries, but it's got kind of, you know, a run-up to surgery thing that has kind of preparing for surgery, and then it's got kind of post-op surgery. It kind of hits it day by day, goes through all the medication stuff. It kind of pushes you notifications on your phone. And so for the very old arthroplasty patients, obviously that's not very helpful because they may not be as tech savvy, but for the majority of the, of the arthroplasty patients, they've actually found it really helpful, and it heads off a lot of those phone calls. Um, the other thing we did, so we actually looked at our patients, um, the elderly patients, the ones who are most likely to bounce back, and we compared the ED visits, readmissions, complications, basically everything in the post-op period between the inpatient and outpatient cohorts, and we found that there's basically no difference, right? There was no difference in ED visits, no difference in readmission rate between the two cohorts, which tells us, one, outpatient arthroplasty is safe and appropriate selected patients, but the other thing that's interesting is we found that the vast majority of those visits were actually for non-surgical reasons, meaning they were for medical visits. So, you know, hypertension, you know, fluid retention, you know, renal failure, you know, all this kind of stuff that's like maybe two months out from surgery, but still falls into that global period. And so one of the things that we've changed is we've tried to really closely coordinate with patients' primary care doctors um, and kind of loop them into the process to try and head off a lot of those medical bounce backs because that's really the big thing that we noted in our practice that was really driving up, you know, ED visits was all these medical issues.
Tell us, James, has it changed your anesthesia at all? Um, I mean, I know that's one of the concerns is, do I need to use more regional anesthesia? Does it, has it changed the way that you're discussing kind of general anesthesia with your um, anesthesiologist the day of? The, uh, there's a lot of data on, on regional anesthesia and shoulder arthroplasty. And, you know, some people do liposomal bupivacaine. I tend to pre prefer indwelling catheters. Um, so that part hasn't necessarily changed except for the patients with underlying pulmonary disease. So in those patients that have pulmonary compromise at baseline, I'm more likely to do a single shot block and do something that's not as long acting because I worry that if you get hemidiaphragmatic paralysis, compromise their lung function, they may not be able to go home. Um, so those may be the ones who have to get admitted if they're a little bit hypoxic and PACU. Um, and so that's one thing that's kind of changed is, you know, anybody with lung compromise, will do a single shot. I won't do anything long acting. I totally agree with you about that. One thing we've actually switched to is uh, for patients where I'm worried about that, we're doing a combined suprascapular and axillary nerve block instead of an interscaling because then it doesn't touch the phrenic. The pain relief is not quite as good, but it's still substantial. What about, what about you, Craig? I, I know you've been very involved with trying to get the anesthesia right. Has your switch to outpatient changed that at all or no? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that you know, one of the great things in hip and knee is that, you know, there's been a lot of shared information. There's been a lot of good studies done on a lot of the anesthetic techniques and the perioperative medications and all that stuff. And it's, it's, it really is more than just the anesthesia technique. It's all the medications we give preoperatively. You know, almost all patients are getting uh, dexamethasone. Uh, are, you, are you guys using that in the shoulder as well? Preoperative dexamethasone? If I can get the anesthesiologist to give it, we're certainly using it, but not some of them feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, like there's so much that, that we've learned that really benefits the patients. Dexamethasone, they're getting Ketorolac intraoperatively, they're getting Celebrex preoperatively, they're getting acetaminophen preoperatively. And again, if these things haven't been studied, uh, you know, in your guys' world, it would be beautiful fodder for studies, you know, for the ASES to kind of organize these things. You know, the Nee Society is trying to organize some stuff now where you get a bunch of sites together and, you know, hopefully you don't have to enroll that many patients and you learn something pretty quickly. But um, in addition to those medications, again, we're giving Ketorolac intraoperatively, if I didn't mention that as well. We're doing periarticular injections intraoperatively, um, you know, that include some type of a long-acting local anesthetic. And by that, I mean like ropivacaine or pupivacaine. Uh, we use ropivacaine because of the cardiac toxicity profile. Uh, not as much evidence, uh, for epinephrine and clonidine, but we throw those things in there as well as Ketorolac. Some people throw steroids in there. And just a little plug, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons just did a big literature review on all the perioperative stuff that's done in hip and knee replacement that would in many ways probably be very applicable to total shoulders as well. So uh, about half of that guideline has been published and the other half will be coming out soon, but there's a lot of good information there. In terms of the anesthetic itself, um, Around the knee, we use Adams Canal Blocks, have been very popular. They're very easy for the anesthesiologist to use. And then I think there are some folks who use uh, some type of neuraxial or spinal anesthetic. Um, my preference based on our own data from a randomized trial we did, it was using a general anesthesia. Just because if you're trying to do outpatient procedure uh, and you make your lower extremities weak, you know, it's in some way gonna inhibit their ability to ambulate. I think it also has a greater effect on their bladder. 
for you guys in the upper extremity, you know, I, I don't think that those issues are probably germane. Um, and then for the uh, for the spinal itself that we use, which again, just of interest, we've actually gone to lidocaine spinals, um, which kind of got a bad rap 20, 30, 40 years ago um, for causing transient neurologic symptoms, but we really haven't seen that. But it's a very short-acting spinal. So the spinals that I use generally last about 90 minutes. That means you've got 90 minutes to position, prep, drape, do the procedure, and get the patient to the recovery room. So uh, at our outpatient centers, they're efficient, and we've got teams that work together, you know, very small atmosphere. And, and those, those finals work great. They work great. Uh, but they are very short-acting. What about you, Antonio? I'm sure you work with a variety of anesthesiologists in your setting. Have you, have you guys worked with them? What's, what's been a change, the change for you? Yeah, we're very similar to Craig when it comes to our setup. So it is different. We're lower extremity. So we actually, interestingly, prefer spinals to our general anesthesia. Uh, our patients are waking up really slowly and not being able to mobilize really quickly after general anesthesia, which they should be able to. And another group down in Arkansas also showed that as well. But we switched to, um, um, we, we did spinals already beforehand and we were doing bupivacaine. So we switched to medpivacaine and ropivacaine because they're shorter duration. And similar to Craig, same thing. We want to try to do them for 90 minutes. So it's a shorter duration of time. And then it wears off so that they're motor ready and ready to go in the PACU. Uh, one of the big things, too, is because we want them mobile as quick as possible, we have um, our uh, physical therapists actually come to the post-op recovery area and walk with patients from there as opposed to taking them up to a room, having to transfer them, and then having physical therapy go to them. So physical therapy moved um, down to their area, and that was really the work of uh, Dr. Vivek Shah, who is our director of outpatient arthroplasty, and really kind of made that a change and a culture change that's been really good. Uh, most of us use pericapsular as well, too, and we use similar agents, as Craig mentioned as well. Um, we use uh, uh, pivocaine is good. It's more expensive. Bupivacaine is a little bit cheaper and works well. We don't use extended liposomal bupivacaine. We just use regular bupivacaine. We use clonidine and toradol, and we use some epi to reduce um, bleeding. And so we use it in our patients and find out. We also use dexamethasone, too. Um, similar to Craig, and what we do is we actually send patients home with one or two doses of it postoperatively in our total joint patients. Um, and there have been a few studies showing that one or two doses postoperatively can actually help with post-op nausea and vomiting, as well as pain, too. Um, we just tell patients to watch out for their glucose levels, especially if they're diabetics. Um, but we do send patients home with that, and that does help with their recovery as well. Okay, let's do, there's there's two medication issues that I think are uh, frequently discussed without patient. Number one is, how do, what do you do about the antibiotics? Because if you're going to admit someone, typically you would give them 24 hours of IV antibiotics. And the second is to do with DVT prophylaxis. Does that, the fact that you're sending a patient out change the way that you do that? Certainly, I mean, if you were planning to use Coumadin, that might change your approach a little bit. So rapid fire with those two issues, Antonia, how, how, how are you managing those in your practice for the average patient with no risk factors? So an average patient with no risk factors, a patient can get one dose of antibiotics, go home, and that's it, end of the day. Um, if patients are slightly higher risk, we may send them home for the 24 hours. So we give them oral um, Keflex, for example, if they have ANSEF, but ANSEF and then postoperatively aspirin, so they just get it afterwards. What about you, Craig? Uh, so we give one preoperative dose and one postoperative dose. And that seems to be absolutely fine. There's more and more data that just a single postoperative dose is fine for the average case. Um, and for thromboembolic prophylaxis, the majority of patients are giving baby aspirin, uh, one baby aspirin twice per day. 
um, if for whatever reason they're on an agent beforehand or there's, you know, uh, felt to be more effective with a more vigorous agent, which honestly there's not a lot of data support for. Um, most of the data suggests that aspirin and maybe baby aspirin is associated with the lowest all-cause perioperative mortality. Um, we'll use some other kind of oral agent. But again, baby aspirin for the most. What about you, James? So just the uh, preoperative dose of ANSAF generally, assuming they don't have any confirmed allergy, and then no DVT prophylaxis, but very aggressive education on early ambulation. Now, one of the things you, that Craig Peter? mentioned, um, I'm using baby aspirin twice a day, just like Craig, and then I've been giving one preoperative dose, and if they're there long enough, I push for a second dose. But that, depending on where they are in PACU, that dose has been somewhat of a challenge for us. So that's, I'll say based on, this is one of the things I love about this podcast is every time I have someone on, they teach me something new. So now I'm going to push for that dose more because I know that everyone else is doing it. So I love that. One of the things that Craig mentioned was that there is this, you know, we give patients so much information the day of surgery about take these medications at this time, do this, don't do this. If you have these problems, they're worrisome. If you have these problems, they're not. A lot, of, a lot of focus then has been on maybe we need to attack that with kind of an educational class ahead of time. James, you mentioned that you're using this app. Are you also, do you have an educational class? How are, how are you managing the kind of pre-op educational piece differently with this transition? So I don't have a class. A lot of our low extremity arthroplasty colleagues do have a class that's now gone virtual, but I, I like the app. The biggest thing that I have, I mean, is, is questions on pain medication. So we've actually like, written out like a schedule for people that like draws out kind of when to take your medication and you know uh craig mentioned you know the importance of acetaminophen that's one of the things that you know we I, we basically copy a lot of stuff from hip and knee arthroplasty right that's how shoulder works and so we've copied a lot of these these kind of ideas like schedule to acetaminophen preoperatively and postoperatively and that's that's honestly the medication i get the biggest pushback from people on because they're like well it's just tunnel i don't want to take that and so we like that's honestly where I spend most of my counseling. Like, no, this is important. We want to minimize your narcotics. I'll like show them the little schedule and say, hey, take your Tylenol here, here, here. Take your other pain medications, kind of wean off of this and this order. So that's kind of the most education I do. And then I just tell them to really ambulate a lot. And, you know, I'm, I try to minimize the narcotics, obviously. What about you, Craig? I, mean, I know for a while, George Rush was doing like a Joints Academy preoperative class. Has that changed with the pandemic? Are you also virtual now? Virtual class, virtual class. It seems to work just as well. Do you require the patients to go to the class? Like what if the patient doesn't make the class? Are they canceled? How does that work? Then they've canceled. Just too many problems if they don't, if they don't get the class. What about you, Antonio? We're similar. We had an in-person class initially, and it was kind of nice because we could show people and their support person things that they have to worry about or how to walk with a walker and, you know, kind of get some things that they could do, no throw rugs at home, stuff like that. But we transitioned to virtual because of the pandemic, and we've been doing virtual afterwards, and we don't require it, um, but we highly recommend it. Whenever my scheduler sends out our packet of information, like where to show up and all the information about the hospital, we also put in the joint class in there. It's actually run by our physical therapists. And again, because of that, it's better for mobility. Um, and that is something that is 
informative to patients. It's nicer when it's probably identifiable per surgeon. So we have a joint class that's for all of our colleagues. And for example, for total hips, there's questions about approaches and different things like that. That becomes a little bit thing uh, areas that we don't want to mess with. We want to just kind of keep it more generic. So you know, to, to James's point is we want to focus on pain regimen, following the pain regimen, and being mobile. Now, you mentioned the classes run by a physical therapist. Craig mentioned earlier that he's having the patient see the physical therapist in the PACU as to do. After the patient leaves, the, let's say you're doing an outpatient hip or knee. After the patient leaves the facility, how are you managing PT from there? Are you telling them go to PT the day after surgery? I mean, that's definitely a transition. If the patient's in the hospital, they see physical therapy. How, how have you managed that portion of it? For us personally, there's two ways for physical therapists. So, uh, or sorry, physical therapy exercises. So we use a platform that is an app. Um, and this app is videos of exercises they can do after surgery. They can actually do it before and after surgery. And in theory, this is supplement their exercises. So it really depends on the patients. Young, active patients don't need to go to outpatient physical therapy if they can do the exercises on their own. In Massachusetts, it's a bit, or in our healthcare system, there's a big emphasis towards home PT. Uh, we try to avoid it if possible, but it's something that we've been using more than I would want to personally. Uh, so a lot of our patients do home PT for the first two weeks. That's tied in with home nursing. And then they go to outpatient physical therapy. So they don't go to outpatient physical therapy right away. For the younger patients, some of them really want physical therapy right away. So they'll forego the home therapy, uh, which I prefer to do. And then they do outpatient physical therapy. Um, some of my colleagues will say delay physical therapy for one week before, you know, really cranking on the knee, for example, if it's an outpatient total knee. Um, for my practice, I believe it's either physical therapy early or at least do the exercises. So I say physical therapy is only two to three times a week. That's not enough. You need to be doing daily exercises multiple times a day. And that's what this app basically does. It shows a video of someone doing the specific exercise. And then you have the click mark, you know, we all like participation trophies. So you say, okay, I did this, you know, twice today, or I did it three times today as prescribed. And you can prescribe it from a daily basis, or you can prescribe it on a weekly basis and say, okay, I want you to add, you know, straight leg rises this week. I want you to add something else this week. So you can make it progressively more sophisticated or harder for patients over time. And that's in lieu of physical therapy, but some people like to supplement physical therapy with it. What about you, for Craig? How is that? How has this transition outpatient changed your approach to physical therapy? So for um, hips, in my mind, it's a little different than knees. Um, I think there's more and more data suggest that after hip replacement, you may not even need formal physical therapy. That many patients potentially do it on their own or just in normal activities could could suffice. So we delay physical therapy uh, for the first three weeks until patients can drive. Um, so we tell them no specific exercises for the first three weeks. Then once you hit three weeks, you can start outpatient physical therapy. And um, we do an ex I mean, very, very minimal, like maybe one patient a year will get in-home therapy or something like that. It's extremely rare. It's extremely rare. For knees, I, I still think there's a fair amount of patients that, particularly if they're motivated enough, could probably do it on their own. I think the problem on the knee is it's harder to predict who's going to run into trouble and then may require something like a manipulation under anesthesia. So we more consistently have our patients go into outpatient physical therapy following knee surgery. What about you, James? Yeah, so 
I've kind of got two different protocols. For the anatomic shoulder arthroplasty, I usually won't start therapy until they come in for their two-week post-op visit. I'll have it scheduled to start kind of right after that visit. Um, for the reverse shoulder arthroplasties, most of them I don't send to therapy, um, assuming it's reversed for kind of tucked arthropathy or arthritis or something like that. If it's a reverse for fracture, um, those tend to get a lot more stiff in my experience, and so those I'll, I'll send to therapy. Um, but I've kind of slowed down on therapy kind of, you know, the farther, the farther I got out. I used to start anatomic therapy after a week, but now I just kind of let things cool down, let the subscap kind of try to heal a little bit more, and then kind of get things going. I haven't seen much downside to that. I totally agree with you, James. That's definitely, I mean, I know you and I did the same training and that's, I think there's been literature also from Pat DeNora to suggest, you know, you really, there's no reason to do a lot of therapy before six weeks with your anatomics and it definitely can compromise your subscap. Now, Craig mentioned earlier that there was this, that he feels there's, this has been a big benefit. So you guys have all made the transition to more, more or less to have some of your patients go as outpatients. I want to talk you to talk about kind of your personal experience with the patients post-op. Do patients like this? Why is this good? Why is this bad? Is this something that's good for our patients going forward? James, what are your thoughts? So I think it's fantastic. You know, so I, I had a lot, of, once I started doing this, I had a lot of people who actually sought me out for this. And, you know, again, we, we kind of looked at the state of Texas and we found patients are more willing to, we, we kind of looked at the zip code where they live and the zip code where they get surgery. And we found that people are actually more willing to drive longer distances to go get our outpatient shoulder arthroplasty than kind of inpatient. So suggesting that patients are kind of, that this is something that motivates them to seek people out. So I think patients like it. Um, I think from a surgeon standpoint, I, I like it, you know, it improves efficiency. And I think just kind of thinking about our healthcare environment as a whole, um, a lot of physicians are being kind of the onus is on us for cost control, right? And so there's a lot of kind of service line deals where we have to kind of control costs and we have to, you know, be responsible for that. And as we take ownership about patient shoulder arthroplasty, it kind of puts us in the driver's seat for more of those cost controls, right? So if we're transitioning to an ASC environment, we have better control over these costs. We can kind of make a positive change for our patients and for the healthcare system as a whole. Craig, I know you've lived this for longer than we have. Tell us about why this is good. So I think there's there's a lot of layers to it. Um, so cut me off if I get verbose. I think for our patients, um, I think we've got more and more data suggesting that, believe it or not, it's actually safer, um, that the risk of perioperative complications is lower for patients who have patient surgery in an outpatient setting. Um, Two, I think if we look at patient satisfaction, we've at least got data from our site that shows that patient satisfaction is better. And patient satisfaction being better ties into the next part, which is surgeon satisfaction. And I think those two things are linked. Um, I think a lot of the ambulatory surgery centers that people are operating on and are in part physician-owned or wholly physician-owned or a physician partnership, and the physicians in general have more control over that work environment. For me specifically, I really get, quote unquote, to choose which scrub nurses or technicians I work with, what anesthesiologists I work with. And I think that control over the work environment honestly leads to higher quality care because I think we as a physician know who the best person to be in the room. I think it leads to the nursing staff having higher quality because, again, we're, we're making those choices ourselves. And if, if at my facility there's someone who I don't really like the care that they're providing, 
I stop working with that person, whether it be a nurse, a surgical technician, or an anesthesiologist. If I don't approve of the care for whatever reason, that's not someone who I work with. And again, for better or for worse, I think we as physicians know what's best for our patients. We have a lot more control over uh, the medications that are given, how they're given, the perioperative protocols. And again, I think we as physicians do a better job. We as the specialists know what's best for our patients, and we do a better job. And I think that leads to higher quality care and leads to much greater patient satisfaction. You know, I have a lot of colleagues who work in big academic medical centers, and it's frustrating. You know, it's frustrating to not have control of your work environment. If I called up tomorrow and said, uh, you know, I really want to start at 5.30 tomorrow morning, they'd be like, okay, Dr. Delva, we'll start at 5.30. If I tell them, hey, you know, I have to drop off my kids at school, I want to start at 9 tomorrow, they're like, okay, Dr. Delva, we'll start at 9. So it's just a very, very different dynamic that I think leads to a lot more physician happiness. And I think when the physicians are happier, the staff is happier. Um, and it just leads to a very, very positive work environment. But it is a lot more work for you as the physician in terms of interacting with the patients because, again, for me, it's a lot more phone calls to my patients. But I also think that that reflects back on the patient satisfaction. They know that I'm calling them you know, at least twice in the early post-operative period. The ambulatory surgery center I work in is really small, so I'm always walking to the recovery room after I do a case and checking on my patients. So I actually think there's more direct interaction between me and my patients. I have more control over the facility that leads to better quality of care and better happiness. Um, I guess the only other thing is you have to take that responsibility seriously, and you do have to follow your patients. You do have to make sure they have access to you. And also, when you're interacting with the staff in that type of a small environment, you can't be a disruptive physician. It just doesn't work. Um, and a lot of the operating agreements for the places that I work have specific clauses about removal of individuals from physicians from the facility for no cause, which is usually related to physicians acting poorly because the other physicians don't want that type of work environment. We want a very positive envir environment. We want a positive relationship with our nurses and our anesthesia colleagues. And someone who's yelling and cursing and throwing stuff, that doesn't work. Um, so it, it's definitely give and take. But at the end of the day, you know, I live in downtown Chicago. I live in Lincoln Park, for anyone who knows Chicago. And I drive 30 minutes to a little over an hour to my surgical facilities. And I don't mind it at all because I love working at those places because I have a lot more control over my work, my work atmosphere. So my overall happiness is, is a lot more working at those facilities. And as much as I love Rush, Maine, you know, like today, like, you know, maybe I should be saying this on a podcast. I'm, I haven't even started my first case, and they wheeled my first case in the second room into the room with, without asking me, without anyone from the orthopedic team being there. Like, I look up on the monitor and see my patient being wheeled in, and I'm like, guys, what is going on? You know, it's just like a constant battle, you know, just constant little things. Did you give the antibiotics before the case? No, we didn't give the antibiotics. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, can you call the family to the recovery room? And then you get there and, you know, you're waiting 10 minutes for the family because no one's called to bring the family up to the thing. It's just like these little things that over time, it's like Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day too, isn't it? I think it is. Um, just get tiresome over time. And those things don't happen in my ambulatory surgery center. They just don't. They don't. So. Certainly, I think that's a um, for people who do arthroplasty have operated through a main hospital. It, I think the main hospital OR has a lot of benefits and it has some downsides. And 
Um, I mean, certainly, I think that becomes part of your work environment and your work environment, as you mentioned, has a big influence on the way you approach the care you give to the patients, which is ultimately the most important aspect of our jobs. Antonio, tell us for you, has this been a positive experience? Has it been a positive experience for your patients, for you personally? How has that how has that gone forward for you? So I wish I had Craig's amazing environment where they catered exactly to what I want, but I'm in an academic medical center, so I don't quite have that. Um, we do most of our outpatient procedures though in our smaller hospital. And that is actually a very big benefit because it is more of a community and group feel where, you know, the pre-op and the post-op area are right next to each other. And there's collaboration and understanding. We send an email out saying there's same-day discharge. So at one point in time, in all honesty, it's had to be a very positive change for us because we wouldn't have been able to operate throughout the pandemic if we hadn't set up an outpatient program. Again, thanks to Dr. Shah and Dr. Fitz and making this a reality. So that made a really big difference or else we'd all be sitting around twiddling our thumbs and you know, no one likes a board orthopedic surgeon, so that's bad. Um, so it's a beneficial program and my patients now seem to really look forward to it. You know, Again, prior to the pandemic, I think patients were hesitant because it's not really the culture here around Massachusetts or around the Boston area, um, but that has totally changed. Patients come in requesting it and wanting it. So you know, James's point of people coming from a distance away to say, hey, look, you guys do outpatient. I want to go to your facility. Now, more and more people are doing outpatient joints, so we're not unique in that manner. Um, but people do like that, and they do listen to that. And, you know, we do uh, put it out there in the community that we do do outpatient joints. So overall, it is a good experience. Um, again, it's more touch points. It's more work for your team. But even though it's more work for your team, I think it speaks to the patient satisfaction. And again, this is not for every single patient. So it's giving options to patients. And, you know, we're in the patient-centric world now where, you know, as a patient myself, I would want to be able to go home the same day. And I think patients requesting that as well are very happy to have that on board. So overall, I'm happy with it. I think there's things that we could always change and tweak and make better. But I think we're all making changes in that manner. And uh, I think we're only going to get better over time. That's about all the time we have for the podcast. Um, I really want to thank all of our guests. Each of them provided incredible insights into their experience. And anyone who's out there trying to make this transition, I think there's a lot of valuable lessons shared here. Um, so I want to thank all of you guys for coming on and sharing your sharing your time, sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. You guys were awesome. Um, for all of our Shoulder Devil listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.